more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, everyone. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBBR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Grace Dietzler. And I'm Miriam Lipton. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Sarah Wolf from the Department of Microbiology. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, happy to be here. Hi. So Sarah studies how bacteria respond to low oxygen concentration on a biochemical level, especially uh, bacteria in the ocean. Today, our interview will take us on a journey through crab fishing, rare ocean currents, and children's book readings. And uh, today, we actually have a super interesting thing going on, our, our first ever live recording, video recording on Instagram. Uh, because, as we'll learn later, this is this is very important to Sarah's uh, outreach, and uh, she's can be found at at scientist Sarah Wolf, and that's Sarah with an H. And if you're following right now, you're probably listening to us, and it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so thank you all for joining us today. Uh, just a quick little update on inspiration dissemination. We are now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Yeah. So, um, we're joining the 21st century. Yes. <laughs> that's basically what's happening. So once this episode is uh, ready in podcast format, you will be able to get that pretty much anywhere. So let's go ahead and get started. Sarah, again, thanks for joining us. Uh, so, so yeah, so Sarah, you, you study a lot of stuff, uh, but mostly uh, oxygen minimum zones. And I think maybe we should just start there and explain what is an oxygen minimum zone and why does it matter? Big yeah. Picture. Yeah, so oxygen minimum zones are areas of the ocean that have low oxygen concentrations. Um, it's just a fancy way of saying low oxygen in an area of water. Makes sense. Yeah, and so <laughs> we have these occur every summer off our coast in Oregon, and there's a couple other places in the world that have these, but the reasons they form are for different reasons according to where they're at in the world. Um, and so in Oregon, we have an oxygen minimum zone that forms both as a result of uh, human-induced climate change and natural phenomena. So it's kind of a double whammy for our coast. And so, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, what causes these to form? You said climate change and and uh, natural phenomena, but what 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 actually occurs to to create these zones? Yeah. So uh, the Oregon coast is part of the California Current System. It's an eastern, what we call an eastern boundary upwelling system. So 
the winds from the north take waters from the surface and it gets pushed and then that water has to somehow be replaced underneath and so waters from the deep get pushed up to the surface um, and then that creates a big phytoplankton bloom and maybe you've heard of uh, eutrophication like in the Gulf of Mexico where you have dead zones and then the bacteria uh -huh. eat all the phytoplankton um, so it's essentially the same thing that's happening here it's just not because of nutrient runoff like where the Mississippi meets the Gulf of Mexico okay so First of all, I want to ask, what is this eastern boundary upwelling system that's here in Oregon? Is it just on the, off the coast of Oregon, like I go to Newport and, and that's it? or No, so there's actually four eastern boundary upwelling systems uh, in the ocean. Like and they, in the world, there's yeah, four of these? Yeah, there's four, four EBUSs. EBUSs? Yeah, well. yeah. <laughs> and while they actually don't, I mean, think about it, the earth is 70% ocean. And yeah. these make up a very, I don't know the exact percentage, but they make up a pretty small amount of the ocean, but they're where we get most of our fish that we eat. Mm -hmm. And it's like where most of our fisheries are located. So then these low oxygen zones could, sounds like they could have pretty devastating effects on local fishing economies, things like that. What, what happens when there is a low oxygen zone? What does it do to creatures in the ocean? Yeah, so uh, this, this problem actually in Oregon was kind of um, addressed first because a fisherman came to my advisor, Francis Chan, here at OSU, and he was like, what's going on? You know, we're, we're not pulling up the same amount of crabs we normally do. And, you know, by looking at the data, you see low oxygen, you start putting the pieces together, and, you know, crabs and other types of fish use oxygen to respire and breathe just like we do. Um, but when you're a bottom dweller and you're on the bottom of the ocean and you're like crawling along, you can't get out of there fast enough. Mm -hmm. And so it can cause a big die off, um, which then results in less crabs for, you know, economic gain. Yeah. When I was doing the um, pre-research for this episode, I came across an article that said that at one point last summer, this low oxygen zone spanned over 8,000 miles. Mm -hmm. So it's... So it's huge. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, like in the blog post, you said that it's just like, we have wildfire season on land. That's a big problem on the West Coast. I'm from California. We get <laughs> lots of wildfires yeah, over here. Um, but it's the same thing in the ocean. We have hypoxia season year to year. And it's to varying degrees. And it's only getting worse, unfortunately. And, and so this is happening where you're studying what's happening in Oregon is potentially happening in, the, in this entire system that spans from... Alaska to Baja, so it's yeah. just this like coastal part of the United States. Yeah, there's there's um, an Oregon oxygen minimum zone, but a lot of these places, upwelling systems can be at risk for... Okay, for, yeah. and I guess I, I sort of don't quite get how a system that brings in lots of nutrients mm -hmm. somehow makes it so that things are dying, because in my mind, nutrients mean life. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, so the, the way the currents work, you know, the water isn't, the, we like to say the ocean isn't a homogenous soup. A lot of people mm -hmm. think, you know, it's just like a big bathtub full of water with everything sloshing around, but it's incredibly orderly. So you have layers of the ocean um, and with the currents on the, on the deeper layers, that water, when it gets washed up to shore, it's old water. And also you might not think water can be different ages, but water yeah, that's no, deeper never thought yeah, that. can be old. So it's like really rich in nutrients that are maybe um, yeah, so it gets pushed up to the water. Or like gravity, things have like brought it down or something? So, like well, uh, sort of like sinking in the ocean, like when you have particles oh, and things eat yeah. stuff and then they kind of get, you know, compounds get broken down and then they keep sinking and For sure. yeah, get transformed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but the nutrients basically feed, I mean, 
phytoplankton are marine plants. It's just phyto means plants and plankton means drifter. And so when they get, they're at that surface layer, they're getting light and they're getting nutrients. And so they're going to go crazy That's and create right. a bloom. Yeah. And blooms aren't always bad. They're, they're, they're super helpful and important for the productivity of the ocean. But in this case, they can be detrimental. And the balance is off. Yeah. And how, and so, and, and it creates the balance because there's the blooms. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? The bacteria eat them. Yeah, so then the blooms, I mean, they die, right? The phytoplankton start to die, the bloom starts, you know, sinking, and then the bacteria in the lower areas of the ocean start to break down those compounds and, or, you know, the compounds from the phytoplankton, and they use oxygen in the process. And so bacteria and, you know, many organisms use oxygen to breathe uh -huh. and also to break down organic matter. And so they need it, you know, just like the crabs, the bacteria need, you know, to, to use that oxygen to... To break down. So the bacteria are consuming these massive phytoplankton detr detritus, mm -hmm. I guess, at such a high amount that they're basically sucking all of the oxygen out of that region. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then no oxygen means things are dying. Yeah. But I would think like things can just swim away. Yeah. Well, crabs, unfortunately, they're pretty slow, you know. <laughs> they're and on so the they, bottom. So they just die. They're yeah. like the canary yeah. in the coal mine. Yeah. Yeah, just that's our. Is that is that how people look at it? I mean, I would assume that coal or not coal miners, but crab fishermen are very concerned about this. Yeah, I think the headline for one of the articles that our work was featured in the Washington Post last year was "Dead crabs are a horseman of climate change mm. in the West." So, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. And so your one of your advisors, uh, Francis Chan here at OSU, uh, actually partners with fishermen off the Oregon coast to mm -hmm. measure things like water, oxygen levels, and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you, I mean, if you think about it, like there's, there's, if you go out and you only can sample X amount of spots and off the ocean, um, that's a very limited amount of data. But in order for us to understand this really changing system, we need more data. And so, and that's expensive to like throw a bunch of, you know, cruises out and do all these things. And so a way to like sort of circumvent that is partnering with people like fishermen who are on the ocean every day. They're the ones seeing the changes. I mean, I live 50 minutes from the coast, you know? Right. Um, and so they, we've actually given them a sensor that they can zip tie into their crab pots and kick off, you know, and leave it. It doesn't cause them any extra work or anything. Right, they're already just going about they're going, way. Yeah, so you could zip tie the little sensor in there, and then when it comes back up, it can all be, you know, through networks. It can be circumvented back to Oregon State. Through magic. Yeah, through <laughs> Bluetooth. <laughs> Bluetooth and magic. Yeah, yeah. And, and so these sensors are picking up oxygen yeah. levels in the like a pulse oximeter or something but. yeah it's like a little fiber optic thing it will it'll measure oxygen and temperature and uh, at which depth they're at uh, you know. and i feel like i imagine that it's not very difficult buy-in for the crab fishermen or maybe it is I always hear about like scientists and like the people fighting at odds <laughs> so are they like no i don't want to do this yeah what from what i hear from francis they're really game they're super helpful nice um yeah well it's in their best interest yeah i mean i think they need crab. it's like 70 million dollar i think a year um in wow. oregon of you know, crab it's, fishing it's one yeah. of the most lucrative industries in oregon yeah it's like crab fishing yeah, and Dungeness are just like the best crab to eat in the world, so yeah. we got to save them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So saving the crabs, finding out what's what's actually occurring like at a microbial and biochemical level uh, in these low oxygen zones, that's all out in the ocean. Mm -hmm. But what you do is you bring it back into the lab, which yeah. 
is fascinating that you can recreate this natural phenomena in, in a lab. So, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so like the first, I would say, two to three years, you know, of my PhD was designing. And you're in your fourth year. I'm in my fourth okay. year, yeah, yeah. Um, was designing what we call our data machine. It's <laughs> essentially this huge system where I bring back, literally, like Grace said in the blog, hundreds of liters of water, 200 okay. liters back, and make uh, a phytoplankton bloom. So I just bring back a ton of water and give it something similar to like Miracle Grow, give them the nutrients, <laughs> throw a light on there with a timer. Well, two, 200 liters for us who aren't uh, yeah. liter friendly, that's, that's, a, that's a lot. That's like a drum the size of my height. I mean, I'm short, I'm like 5'2", but it's like, it's pretty much <laughs> like a 50 me. Gallon yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And that's probably really heavy. We yeah. talk about like, what are the mechanics? How do you get yeah. water here? You just put it on the back of a truck? Um, you know, you'd want to say like, oh, we have some really sophisticated way to collect water, but like we literally take a bucket with a rope and like throw it off the, the, you know, the port or off the boat and collect the water. We do it very strategically. You know, you collect a certain amount of times to make sure everything's clean. You're getting the best water, but we bring it back in 20 liter increments. Um, so I haul 200 liters back in 20 liter carboys. Oh, and we yeah. know that like two liters is like a thing of Coke. <laughs> so, yeah, inside. it's a lot. It's a lot of water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then in the lab, we, we make these phytoplankton bloom in this giant drum. It looks like a like an oil drum or something like that. Uh, there's actually pictures of you yeah. in front of the data machine uh, on the blog at yeah. blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. <laughs> yeah, and there's actually a reel on my Instagram that shows exactly how I make the bloom. Oh, so oh, you guys cool. want to check that out. Yeah. At scientist.sarah with an H. By Sarah Wolf. Yeah. So you have these giant carboys of water mm -hmm. and you're collecting data from them. What kind of data are you collecting? Yeah, so so then we so from that two hundred liter drum we actually separate the water into twenty liter carboys mm -hmm. and we give them, you know, I've just, the system I've designed is uh, delivering different concentrations of oxygen. And you actually you you designed this system. Like yeah, this. like it took me, I'm not an engineer, <laughs> I'm not a plumber, but now I can say I have some chops in, in plumbing and I engineering. this is a perfect example of how during PhD, you learn about your topic, but you, <laughs> you come out of it with so many other skills. Yeah. You're like, yeah, I you can never just thought design a thing, an yeah. ocean. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the thing, your, inter, your cool thing that you designed is the, the oxygen or delivery system and maintaining it, is that sort yeah. of your... Yeah, so it, like when you when you go out to the coast to sample, you only really are able in an oxygen minimum zone. Like if you're going to the field, you're at the mercy of whatever the oxygen is at that uh -huh. year. And so, how do we test hypotheses related to you know tiny microorganisms all the time if we only can do what's in nature? And so we control the oxygen concentrations, we mix the gas, um, and then we compare treatments like low oxygen versus you know a saturated oxygen treatment. And you're do you uh, in these in these carboys? Do you use the microbes that come with the ocean water naturally, or do you yeah. put in a microbiome of some kind? No, it's all totally just what's in the oh, water okay. is there. Yeah, which I just got some genomic data back, so I'm really excited to actually see who's there. Oh, that's um, very exciting. Yeah, you but, just know the stuff there, but you're yeah, not sure checking out the neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and how do you know you don't have like a big fish or something or an octopus in your? Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, there have been like some horror stories from when we first started trying and we didn't filter out large enough oh, organisms. No. Oh. And so, but you're filtering them out. Yeah. You're like, I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh. We had a grazing issue one time, but. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see it. Okay. And you, you're collecting data on these for how long? Yeah. 
Uh, about 16 weeks was last summer, but wow. this one might go a little longer this wow. summer. Wow. Yeah. And, so, <laughs> and how many times a week? Um, last summer, I was collecting two or three times a week. Oh, my goodness. Um, it's a full-time job. It's like yeah. siphoning off water from yeah. this big ocean thing, your data machine. Yeah. And then you analyze the water samples. Yeah. That's yeah. what this means, like, every week. Yeah. Um, well, how you had kind of mentioned where the bacteria, like, where do the bacteria come in? Like, you make yeah. the phytoplankton bloom, where do the bacteria come mm -hmm. in? So the, one of the biggest parts of our hypotheses is, you know, how the bacteria actually break down organic matter mm -hmm. in okay. low oxygen concentrations. And so that means we have to essentially kill off all the phytoplankton. So we put them in the dark, and oh. all the plants oh. die. And then we watch how the bacteria use the oxygen. Are they respiring faster or slower? And then our measurements are like things like carbon. So we can see what carbon compounds are present across the treatments. Yeah. Okay, so it's basically like your control is the normal mm -hmm. oxygen level yeah. water, data machine water, and then yeah. it's the oxygen, low oxygen that you've created. Yeah. And you have the two systems. If you have a lot of carbon, what does that mean? Or like what, where does the carbon yeah. come to play? So we think that, that a specific group of enzymes are dependent on oxygen concentration to break things down in the water. And so if they're inhibited at low concentrations, that means there might be a pileup of carbon, a certain type of carbon in the low oxygen. Um, treatments because the bacteria can't use these enzymes to break down yeah so certain types of carbon yeah it just doesn't like if it's if it's too low of oxygen it just the enzyme doesn't work and so that means that carbon just gets built up and built up and built up and, gotcha. yeah and having a lot of carbon then means that because you need the carbon the bacteria mm -hmm. I guess I'm the bacteria need the carbon if there's not or if, I guess I'm not understanding what they, if there's a lot of carbon yeah what does that mean? Yeah, so that relates actually all the way back to the big picture. Yeah. So in these eastern boundary upwelling systems, like sometimes they go anoxic. But Oregon, That's we don't... no oxygen. No oxygen, Ooh. yeah. But in Oregon, we don't see that. We, we see that they go low oxygen, but they don't use that last bit of oxygen. And so mm -hmm. our hypothesis is that above, you know, above a certain concentration, or below a certain concentration, above zero and maybe below 20, we'll say, uh -huh. sure. that, that concentration, um, the, the enzymes aren't working. And Got so it. it'll kind of buffer. So it might actually put the brakes on global ocean deoxygenation if we're, you know, if our hypothesis is there's evidence for it. Um, yeah. And you actually did publish a paper recently, right? Yeah, it was last year. I was a co-author on, uh, it's called Biochemical Barriers on the Path to Anoxia, question mark. So, <laughs> <laughs> question mark. Question mark. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was so you had last year's big experiment mm -hmm. published paper, and you have another one coming up this year. Yeah, yeah. Woo. So we are gearing up June. <laughs> it's going to be a long summer. <laughs> oh yeah, getting ready. Yeah. But but so then all, you're doing all of this work, mm -hmm. um, and is there a big picture? Like, why does someone care whether or not there's oxygen in? Yeah, the, like having the ability to determine oxygen levels or something or bacteria levels. Yeah, that that's a really good question because from a biochemical standpoint, it might not be entirely clear, like <laughs> what in the world. Um, but from year to year, we don't really have a very good way to predict what the coast is going to look like in terms of oxygen concentration. So um, by being able to predict what the water is going to look like, how low an oxygen it's going to be, we can better increase the resilience of coastal communities and you know, help out 
maybe the fishermen who, if they're expecting a bad year for crabs, then we can help that. And so one of the long-term goals of this project is to create some sort of um, biochemical indicators. So maybe if we can find a suite of compounds that are present in the water, then uh -huh. that can inform maybe how far along the water is or how much further the water is going to go in oxic or, or hypoxic. It kind of reminds me of like an earthquake with a seismologist. We know that an earthquake happened after the fact. Yeah. Not super yeah, helpful, but exactly. you really like to know before an earthquake happens. <laughs> yes. Exactly. So here you're like, I want to tell you before this is going to be a problem until yeah. afterwards. Yeah. yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So if you're just now tuning in, it is around 720. You're listening to Inspiration Dissemination on KBBR. We're chatting with Sarah Wolf, and we've been talking a little bit about her research and uh, low oxygen zones and what bacteria are doing in these. But I kind of want to switch gears a little bit, Sarah, and talk about um, how you came to be studying this system and these bacteria and what your journey was to Oregon State and to studying uh, marine microbes. And, and how we have an Instagram yes. right now watching us on video. Like, what is happening? Let's learn about this. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, so I uh, I grew up in Sacramento and I went to Montana State for, you know, to start college and I was a political science major and I really loved science, so I just kept taking science classes and I so happened while I was on an exchange program in the Caribbean I took a microbiology course, and there were three of us in the class, and the professor's Wait, like, three, three? three people, <laughs> and were all girls. All, were they all poli-sci majors? No, <laughs> no. They were, they were like nursing. Yeah. But um, but the professor's like, all right, there's only three of you. We're going to like do some research, and you can help me out. Oh, and so, cool. so then I you know, started doing water quality research uh, in St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and that led to like a conference, you know, publication a poster and an award and it was like whoa like I kind of like this stuff so then I came back changed my major like, this is easy just yeah like, get awards this is fun <laughs> it was kind of one of those things you just walked into and it was like perfect you know yeah and you you identified or described new bacteria is that what you did during is that what that poster was about no that was uh this one it was um just about so in the Caribbean you have a lot of rainstorms and oh. so we were assessing like when the runoff comes into the bay if it's safe to swim but okay. um, that I did, we did characterize some novel species when I, so when I finished, I transferred from Montana State to Cal State LA um, and changed my major to microbiology. And I took another small research, um, like a six months research internship with the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Ah, and there you did describe new species of bacteria, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We wait, named so after Carl Sagan. <laughs> really? Yeah. What? Wait, is it like, is it Carl something or is no, it Sagany? It's Sagany. It's Bacillus Sagany and then Bacillus Glenny after John Glenn. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. They were, they were found in uh, clean rooms, right? Yeah. Where, okay. Where spacecraft were assembled. Where, where bacteria shouldn't be. Yeah. Just like super strong stealth bacteria <laughs> that live in space clean rooms. But in some ways that's interesting because if they're out there, then... Mm -hmm. These are some crazy Where bacteria. Else they be? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where I feel like Sarah, weren't you saying that bacteria have actually lived on the outside of spacecraft, like in space? Yeah, there's there's a yeah spore forming bacterium that survived for eighteen months on the outside of the International Space Station. And see, we, we joke in microbiology labs <laughs> that bacteria can survive on the outside of the ISS, <laughs> but we can't get them to grow in our labs. <laughs> They're <laughs> so finicky. They're so picky. Yeah, and, and like it even survived re-entry, or it didn't. It was just on the outside. Oh, I don't remember. I, I but still, yeah, on the outside. Yeah. 
crazy. It, that's insane. So, okay, but you started at Montana, mm -hmm. you went to the U.S. Virgin Islands, and then you went to Cal State LA. Yeah. You had two kind of unusual entries into science that mm -hmm. isn't sort of the normal, quote-unquote, normal way. Yeah. So not a traditional route by any means. No, and I actually, like, took some time off in there when I was transferring, and, yeah, it was definitely a non-traditional path. I didn't work in one lab for my whole undergrad experience, and both of these research, you know, opportunities were very, very different in what I studied. Yeah, I feel like most, when I hear about scientists or when I think about a scientist who's working right now, and they had a, they worked undergrad and they were in a lab, mm -hmm. but that's not what you did. No, I only have two terms of undergraduate research yeah. experience when I applied for my PhD. So then, yeah, at what point did you decide you wanted to go for a PhD and, and keep doing this? Yeah, I, I felt really inspired by the people at JPL when I was working um, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. They just, one of my advisors actually told me, like, I come to work and still get butterflies every day. And I was like, I want oh, wow. that. I, I want that. that. That's so, crazy. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, all right, he has a PhD. He knows what he's <laughs> doing. He loves his life. I, I need to go get a PhD. I feel like that's somewhat one of the things that's really inspiring for people to, if you find someone that has a job that you like, mm -hmm. and to sort of be like, how did you get here? What yeah. did you do? Because I want to follow those steps. <laughs> and... Uh, then here you are yeah. doing that. Maybe someone will be following your steps. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they already are. <laughs> yeah, so you applied for PhD programs in, you wanted to study marine microbes specifically at this point, or? I was kind of like, I love environmental microbes, okay. and so that's why I chose OSU, because gotcha. a lot of the other programs I had applied to had a strong, heavy maybe more clinical microbiology um, focus in their department, but OSU has like it's shocking how many environmental microbiologists are in our department. It's awesome. Yeah, our department definitely has a, a huge focus on um, environmental micro, mm -hmm. and especially like ocean and marine yes. microbiology systems. So you're in, I actually don't believe we said this, um, you're co-advised by doctors uh, Steve Giovanoni in mm -hmm. microbiology and um, Francis Chan in? Integrated biology. Integrated biology. Yes. Okay. <laughs> what's, in, what's integrative biology? Um, uh, Mystery. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of it's those all things. Integrated. It's all. It's, it's the all. rest of it. We're just the micro stuff. There is yeah. everything else. Got one it. of our, one of our co-hosts who's not here today is an integrated biologist. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know integrated biology. Fun here. Um, yeah, and so I guess that's where you ended up. And yeah, but in uh, so clinical biology though, that's something where it's like MRSA. Yeah, maybe. And I feel like maybe people think that that has more utility. Mm -hmm. But this has a ton of utility, clearly. Yeah, like most people don't know that in a single drop of seawater, there's a million bacterial cells. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, but they're so important. There's so many of them. Yeah, it's like, it's not just like uh, don't drink the seawater because it's gonna make you throw up. But there's a million little creatures. <laughs> yeah, gonna well, hitch a ride. Micro professors in college used to tell us like it's a microbial world. We just live in it. Yeah, <laughs> they run the world totally. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, I wonder if it, like, your time at St. Thomas kind of got you interested in, in marine stuff, or who knows yeah. where it came from. Yeah, I think it kind of comes full circle. You know, it's funny because I grew up crabbing on the North Coast with my oh, dad. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like, near Dillon Beach, and we spent a lot of time there growing up, and it's just, like, feels like home on the North oh. Coast. And then it was like, okay, the marine thing caught my interest in the Caribbean, but, like, to be back on the North Coast, like, really in the systems that I grew up in is, like, full circle moment, you know? Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. And and you are, has have people in your family been to college or is that? Uh, yeah, so people have been, but um, 
my parents, neither of them went to college, um, and so I am a first-generation college student. Even um, more non-traditional. Yeah. Stacking it. Yeah, my parents definitely prioritized education for us. They wanted to make sure that we went for the education, and with that, they like were like, follow your dreams. Like, if you want to be a poli-sci major and take science classes, do it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> do you feel like there were some challenges along the way being a first-generation college student? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of barriers to just like what we call college knowledge, you know, mm -hmm. like the institutional things that you don't know about. Um, like if I had known, maybe I should be in a lab earlier or be in a lab consistently, you know, just little things like that. But um, I have a 17 year old sister and it's like awesome because I feel like it's just streamlined. Like We got it <laughs> down, you know, she's Is she applying to college now. Yeah, she's oh. actually starting college next Year. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So you were yeah. able to kind of help her through Yeah, that yeah, yeah. It's cool. It's definitely like generational change in the family, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah, because there's never anyone that says, in order to go to grad school, you mm -hmm. have to do X, Y, and Z. It's yeah. just like they say, get good grades, maybe. And yeah. there's so much more to that. Yeah. Um, okay, so you're telling your sister, mm -hmm. you're teaching her, trying to create this new cycle. Um, but that's not the only way that you're reaching out to people and teaching them about STEM and everything to do with your life, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> uh, At some point we're going to get to the Instagram, right? Yeah. It's coming. Yeah. We're, we're getting there. Yeah. 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 But something I, happened specifically over COVID that kind of triggered this. Yeah. I, a lot of my family and friends were like, their kids were bouncing off the walls. They didn't know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. And they're like what can we give them to, you know, teachers didn't have curriculum planned out for like the first, you know, maybe month or two. Yeah. And so I was doing all these Zoom lessons with kids, like trying to get them hyped on marine microbes, like telling them about But you just created the... Zoom lessons? Well, yeah, and I had taught a lot in the department, like a lot of intro micro stuff. So I'm like, okay, how can I scale this down for a kindergartner? And then <gasps> we're going to teach them it. Because you don't get microbiology in kindergarten oh, or in third grade. Never. Yeah, so like... <laughs> I can't even... What, what is like the curriculum for a kindergartner about microbiology. What are you showing them or teaching them? That things are small? Like, yeah. Is that this concept? Yeah, like, get that? Yeah, and also, like, I'll have them, like, look at their yogurt container and, like, see that, like, there's lactobacillus and then, like, mm. look up what lactobacillus looks oh, like or, you know, just little things around them. Like, look at the slime in your dishwasher like that's, you know, <laughs> biofilm, stuff like that. Stick a piece of bread under the couch. Don't yeah. Don't look at it too. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like, um, I guess if I had to think about it, I think maybe children don't really have the capacity to understand that, but that's totally not right. No. Of course they do. Yeah, and when I, it's shocking, like when, I think someone, when I was doing one of the Zoom lessons, a kid was like, did you know DNA, or did you know viruses are just DNA in a shell? And I was like, well, what? <laughs> You're like eight. <laughs> yeah, so they, it, it was fun. Yeah, like, they, they grasped their, uh, their stuff. Okay, so you were doing these Zoom, yeah, these Zoom lessons, and yeah. kids were learning and they liked it. Yeah, and I've just like found myself emailing parents like the same set of like resources, and so I'm like, okay, let me just like make a website that I could point them to that has like all these things I'm like emailing over and over. Uh -huh. And so I kind of my website was born out of that, and then working with the kids, I love kids. I worked in a pediatric dental office and nanny before in my non-traditional path along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I wanted to write a children's book and I was like, all right, let's just do some research. So I started renting like hundreds of children's books at the local library. Shout out Corvallis Benton <laughs> County Library. They are amazing. Um, 
And so I just like was taking notes what I liked, what I didn't like, good books, STEM, like they're all STEM themed books. Um, and then I was like, I'm doing this, I might as well share it. So then that's where the Instagram came from. Like so. this is the platform in which you're like, hey, here's this book. These are the really cool things about this book, but it does the science bad or something. What is the No, like? just like showing them like kids books that have science themes. Like oh. there's a ton of scientist picture biographies. I had no idea. Like no idea. every scientist that's a cool scientist in history has <laughs> picture biography, you know, like just regular picture books, but with science themes. Goals as a scientist. I know. Yeah, like to have your to have your own. That's the thing now. Not yeah. uh, not to win a Nobel Prize, to get that <laughs> picture book. And so, how long did it take? Did people start connecting with this pretty instantly? They were like, "Oh yeah, science books for kids." Or like, how long did it take? I guess to kind of build up a following. Yeah, I um, I'm someone who just like was very curious about things, and so I was like, "All right, I gotta know exactly how this like algorithm everything oh. works, right?" You know, so I'm like, "I'm gonna launch a campaign my second month on Instagram," and so I launched 31 Days of STEM Books, which nice. Grace was a guest on my live, um, and so I was like posting 31 days of every day a different STEM book, and then just through the reels, algorithm wise, it started to take off, and then by that was in May, and then by the end of December, I had 10,000 followers. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. That's crazy. And yeah. you have, like, what, 12,000? Yeah. Maybe more? Yeah. As of tonight? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. And so. what has what has the journey of your Instagram account been? I guess you started off with reviewing kids' books, mm -hmm. and it's kind of morphed into, you, you talk about a lot of different things. Yeah. I think that, like, I've sort of reassessed my goals as the Instagram has grown, and I think when I look at my journey... And what I want to put out there is like just exposure. You know, I, yeah, I'm a first gen college student and I didn't necessarily see people who were researchers or were scientists that weren't like medical doctors, you know? Right. And so just increasing exposure to like we're normal people, yeah. showing the behind the scenes in the lab. And, and one thing that I think is really cool that you do is you also kind of talk about your faith and mm -hmm. science as well. And I think sometimes there's a little bit of a perception that. Um, religion and science don't go together, but that's not really true. Yeah, yeah. This has been, like, actually a revelation in my graduate journey. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like I've really come into my, my faith and science journey. I was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school, um, and I never really encountered, like, a major conflict narrative, like, don't believe in evolution, those types of things. But again, just, like, not exposure, like, you know, not talking about it as much. And I think as a microbiologist, like studying the tiniest organisms, mm -hmm. it's just really beautiful to, to think about, you know, as I'm also a Catholic and scientist. And, and I think it shows that they are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. And I'm shocked at like the community that I've built on Instagram that also people are like, Hey, I'm also Christian and I'm doing this. And there's a faith and science conference next. I think it's March 25th and Francis Collins the former head of the NIH huh. it, like runs the whole conference That's and I'm like so crazy Whoa. I actually used to work at NIH too and I I would see him playing piano in, oh. the, in the main area sometimes so that sounds cool. awesome <laughs> yeah I bet you are you going to that conference um we do virtual cool yeah yeah so cool. yeah and um I feel like we should tell people what your website is in case we didn't say that yeah it's just uh sarahwolf.online so dot online yeah Cool. Yeah. Different, the domain than... wasn't like was taken. So. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't really something we talked about in our, mm -hmm. our pre-interview, so I'm going off, off script a little bit here, but I feel like starting a website is something that um, 
was advice you know given to me early in my graduate career even if you don't have a lot of stuff to put on it just make one mm -hmm. but it, it seems a little bit overwhelming how did you get your website started yeah I uh, did a lot of googling I listened to a lot of podcasts and I was like I'm balling on a budget so I'm gonna do what's cheap so I did a Google site and bought my domain for like two years and I'm like all right let's just Google and Google and Google again you know so a lot of trial and error but now it's it's kind of fun because I'm actually developing an online simulation, like a coastal simulation where kids oh, wow. can step through the website and click next, 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 and sort of uh, solve a mystery about crabs on the coast. Like this is the problem, and then it's an interdisciplinary lesson. I'm partnered with some Oregon school teachers to oh, do on the okay. website. Yeah. Do you learn? Is the I guess. Do you, did you have to learn like programming and coding no, to do that? No. Okay. Well, we already know that you're very skilled at just learning. Is, uh, you learning any skill you put your mind to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> you can do yeah. it. Yeah. But yeah, it was just a lot of Googling. I'm not a skilled uh, coder and or bioinformatician, but learning. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear because I feel like part of the barrier for so many people in starting a website is like, well, I don't know how to write HTML. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah. Don't. Yeah, and Google oh, Sites is great. It's been awesome. I mean, yeah, it works good. It's worked well for you. Yeah. 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 I, I think that I feel like we kind of neglected to sort of dwell on the fact that um, sort of the point of inspiration dissemination and why we're here and why you're talking to us and is because people can see who you are and understand this like journey that you came to and sort of be like, mm -hmm. this is... I want to know how to do the things that you do and you have all these interesting facets about you. Mm -hmm. And I think that like the nanny, if someone has to kind of take a, a few years off and nanny on the side, like that actually has been really helpful and helped you have this affinity towards helping children and educating them. Yeah. It's like people can understand that there are steps that we take to get there. And I think also having this Instagram presence and sort of sharing, like showing people about your like, Hair routine, right? Like yeah. making sourdough as we yeah. all did. People exactly. want to know who people are. Yeah. Right? I'm listening on the radio. Sarah has fabulous hair. <laughs> yeah. If you watch it, you will see oh. your hair. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So it's I think that we shouldn't poo-poo that. Not that we yeah. are, but yeah. it's embrace really like lean into this idea of who who it's not just the the scientist behind the door or the curtain. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're this in person with a lot of facets it's yeah it. and it's funny you brought up the hair because I think that's like such a like a thing like I feel like as a kid or maybe as a young younger woman um I was like told curly hair was unprofessional in the workplace or it like oh. was frizzy or things like that and now I'm like during COVID when I was home I had all this time you know to like really mess with my routine and I like nailed it and I'm like okay I feel so much more as myself you definitely have well, thank you. But I just feel more myself when my hair is curly. You know, I just yeah. am, like, more confident and like to share that with other people, too. I'm like, okay, there's no reason to think you can't just be who you are. There's no, like, look of a scientist. No. Yeah. Like, you are a scientist because you are one, not because you look like one. Exactly. And scientists are people beyond the lab. Right. Too. Yeah. Who, yeah. who have sourdough. And, and don't you <laughs> also have, um, like, fun little microbes? I feel like we should have brought one on to show... Oh those yeah, micros. yeah, those are pretty cool. Do you have a favorite? Um, I, you know, I have a paramecium that I really like because nice. I also have a children's book that goes along with it, where it has a song. It's called Amoeba Hop. Um, <laughs> so that one is really cool. Uh, yeah, shout out to Betsy Franco Feeney. She's actually 
putting me in the end of her little children's book that's coming oh, out on wow. Earth Day. Her second Wait, so edition. you're going to be in, in a book? It's like, yeah, like it's a book about diatoms. And she did this whole sort of like a textbook style at the end. And she shows like, this is a microbiologist. And oh, and you're that the was, microbiologist? Yeah, and that was a network Wait, you've already heard the hashtag? Yeah. Hashtag life goals. It's already yeah. happened. The book is Jewels of the Sea. It'll be on Amazon next Jewels, month. like J-E-W-E-L-S. Yeah. yeah. Jewels of the Sea. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... um. Before we before we go, what do you have any future plans? Is this where where does this lead? Because I think that you have a lot of different things you could do. Yeah, I love research. I think if I stepped away from science, I'd miss it too much. Um, but I also really love education. So I'm not sure. I don't know where I'll be in in two years. Um, you want to pivot to whatever gives you butterflies. Yeah, exactly. I want to do what gives me butterflies. And that's great. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. We have two traditions on inspiration dissemination as we close out the show here. First, uh, what is a piece of advice that you have to anyone? Who is it for? Yeah, I think just like anyone, just be curious. My grandma was like a lifelong learner. She always had the like books with random facts in them. And I've been nicknamed Miss Google. Like just be (laughs) curious and ask questions about the history of things and everything. I think that that's really a gift to discover the world around you. Well, and if you learn to, if you learn to code on Google, you are definitely Miss Google. <laughs> <laughs> I, <think so>. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Yeah. And then we'll get it queued up here, but uh, the last tradition is we ask for an outro song. So what is your outro song and why did you pick it? Yeah, my outro song is uh, Upside Down by Jack Johnson. I have loved this song forever, but I think now it has a a really solid meaning because I want to turn the world upside down and ask questions and find things that can't be found. Okay, and with that, here is Upside Down by Jack Johnson. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. And uh, tune in again next week for another episode of Inspiration. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamath. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.